Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we come back to our study of this great gospel. We are uh, well familiar with all kinds of cruel and atrocious societies that have existed through time. We have Rwandan genocides, Cambodian genocides, all kinds of atrocities in the near past, even going back to the Nazi atrocities where millions were gassed and burned, others by the hundreds of thousands became subjects of human experimentation, people locked out in the naked in the sub-freezing temperature only to be drug in suddenly after days if they survived and tossed into boiling water. People who had their bodies uh, worked on, bones extracted, muscles removed, nerves uh, tended to without any benefit of anesthesia, women sterilized forcibly with all kinds of instruments and implantations leading to internal bleeding and suffering of enormous scope and scale, people being fed poison gas and poison food in incremental amounts to see what kind of slow versions of deformity and death would come upon them so they could just be observed for the fascination of Nazi soldiers. We know all of this, and, and uh, it's saw. Painful to listen to, but it's not even perhaps the worst that's ever happened. We go back to the time of the Aztecs, who were a ferocious, brutal society, renowned for their cruelty, their mutilation, their sacrifice, and even their cannibalization. They're said to have sacrificed 20,000 of their own people every year to their God, with tens of thousands of others who had to suffer mutilation in some sort of morbid attempt to appease their gods. And those who were sacrificed often became the meal of the priest who sacrificed them in some sort of sordid cannibalization ritual. Of course, even before them, there were the Spartans who famously tested their newborn children by immersing them in wine to see which ones would survive. Those who did survive but appeared to be struggling or weak were dealt with. They were eliminated by throwing them over a cliff. Only the strongest were, want, were, were fit to survive or wanted within the community because every Spartan was trained from childhood to be a warrior, a murderer, a killer. They had to be considered the most able And uh, their whole life was dictated by how good they were at their job of slaughtering others. And if they were to ever shrink back from that, if they ever abandoned the battlefield, or in fact, if they ever even left any of their instruments, their shield or their helmet on the battlefield and returned without it, they would be slaughtered when they came home. Spartan women were notorious for having a emotionless response to the death of their children. Husbands didn't even live with their wives. They typically lived in groups, in pods, if you will, of 8 to 12 men where they engaged in all kinds of sexual perversion. They glamorized the molestation of boys from as young as the age of 8. They had wives, but they would only visit them on occasion because the women were basically instruments of procreation. So they would visit those women in secret, that is, un. uh, unannounced so that they could force themselves on the women, hopefully so that they could bear more children, many of whom they would have to watch die. There were many other examples, peoples, societies, gruesome and, and atrocious, chopping off limbs, gouging out eyes, flaying people's skins, feeding folks to wild animals, sometimes in the marketplaces and the squares for their own entertainment. You could discuss the Persians, the Assyrians, the Mongols, all kinds of tribes and nations, whole whole societies whose existence is primarily known because of its brutality and atrocity. And we are, it seems, equally, equally repulsed and equally fascinated by these societies. We study them, we excavate their sites, we write histories about them, legends about them, we make movies about them. 
But we always do it with a sense that we're looking back and we're looking down. That we've progressed and we've, we've advanced. That somehow we are separated, not only by time, but by culture. We are more sophisticated, we're more advanced than the disgraceful, the immoral, the vile, the heinous of those distant peoples and their distant societies. In fact, it would be shocking if someone were to come along to you and say to you that those horrible, brutal societies are better than you are. It would be a shock to you to hear that God would view you as heinous and as just, uh, just as a, a abominable, more worthy of his wrath than some of these most historic, barbarous peoples. This is exactly what God says. If you happen to be someone who hears the gospel clearly proclaimed and rejected. See, in God's economy, that is the greatest offense. That is the most heinous crime. The greatest offense a person could ever commit is to sit under the clear proclamation of the truth, to hear the word of God, to encounter the revelation of God, to hear the truth of God's grace and mercy, and then to reject it, one of the greatest privileges and gifts that God has ever given for you to turn away from it is in itself the greatest, most heinous, most inexplicable of crimes. And so consequently, those who do have that privilege, those who do have that experience, invite for themselves the greatest judgment because they have the greatest guilt of any who've ever walked the face of this earth. Now, this, clear, this truth is clearly demonstrated in this passage that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 11, verse 20 through 24. It is the words of Christ to three little towns at the closing of his ministry. These three little towns and villages that were located in a very small footprint of space on the northeast, excuse me, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, if ever there was a privileged people, if ever there was a people blessed to hear the truth, if ever there was a people who were tremendously uh, enlightened by God, this was the people. They had the tremendous benefit of hearing Jesus teach over the course of probably two years Day after day after day, they were the recipients of his powerful healing. We're told at various times that he healed everyone who came to him and they were bringing him people throughout the day. They were crowding his door. They were uh, forcing their way into the courtyard of the house where he was staying. And over and over and over again, he was healing their loved ones. He was casting out demons. He was making them see again, walk again, uh, uh, speak again. Tremendous demonstrations of his power. And on top of all that, they had the, the validation and the endorsement of seeing his righteous life, the character and the nature of the way that he lived his life out before them day after day after day after day. So they heard the truth, they saw the truth, they had demonstrations of the truth over and over and over again. They had more exposure to the truth than any person who's ever walked on the face of this earth. No peoples who had ever lived had anything close to the kind of exposure that Jesus gave to these people. And yet, for all of that great privilege, after the course of two years, Apart from just a few people within these towns, they dismissed Jesus. They were indifferent. They weren't like his hometown of Nazareth. They didn't take him out and try to throw him over a cliff. They weren't like the people in Jerusalem. They didn't call for his crucifixion. They were what? They were just disinterested. They were disinterested. They were indifferent to the gospel. They were unresponsive. They were unconcerned. It didn't move them at all. 
And so now, after two years of faithful and powerful ministry, Jesus realizes, he knows, that their rejection is complete. And the time has come for him to deliver to them one of the most solemn and sober warnings that you'll find anywhere in Scripture because of their apathetic, disinterested response to the truth of the gospel. This is what we hear in verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable or bearable, I should say, in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. For I tell you, that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is a lament that Jesus gives for these three little towns on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. You know them perhaps by name. Capernaum was, of course, the place where Jesus settled to live out his final three years of life. We're told, remember back in Matthew 4.12, that it was the death of John the Baptist, or I should say the imprisonment of John the Baptist, that caused Jesus to leave his town of Nazareth and move north up into Galilee, up into the, the region of Capernaum where he settled in. Capernaum was not a huge place. It was about two or 3,000 people. It was larger than a village, yet small enough where everyone probably knew everyone, and everyone would have known Jesus. They would have known that he healed Jairus' daughter. They would have known that he healed the centurion's servant. They would have known that he healed a woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage for 38 years. They would have known that he had healed a paralytic let down through the roof by his friends. They would have known so many people who were lame and handicapped and blind and deaf who had been touched by Christ and healed. They would have known the people who were demon-possessed and and ostracized to live out into the hills and the caves outside the city who now walked around sane and in their rational mind. They would have known perhaps even the miraculous catch of fish when Jesus was on the shoreline and told the disciples after they had fished all night, cast their net off the side of the boat and they brought in so many fish their boats almost sank. They They would have known, they would have heard, they would have seen so many of these things. Two and a half miles north from there was the little town of Chorazin, probably a quarter of the size of Capernaum. Not much is known about it other than the fact that it probably was the nearest location to where Christ actually taught his great sermon on the mount. They literally had the greatest sermon ever preached, preached at their doorstep. Going across the top of the Sea of Galilee, just across the Jordan River as it empties into the sea. On the other side was Bethsaida, which was the home of Peter and Andrew. It was just a two-mile walk from Capernaum, but this was the place where Jesus, of course, healed. He healed a blind man. He healed others, we're told there, but it's also the place where he miraculously fed virtually the entire countryside. 5,000 men along with the women and children. Probably every resident from every village flocked to him in the plain of Bethsaida and saw the miracle after they had heard him teach all day. This remarkable area, this place is probably four miles square at the largest, was the recipient of some of the most concentrated truth most concentrated grace, most concentrated mercy that God had ever shown to any people throughout all of time. There was no patch of earth that had ever been more blessed than this people. And yet, for all of it, they were unmoved. The miracles did nothing. The power did nothing. The truth did nothing. The life of Christ did nothing. And it's because of all these blessings that Jesus now delivers them this foreboding warning. 
a warning in these few verses that outline, if you will, the dangers of indifferent response to the gospel. The dangers for anyone who listens to and hears the clear proclamation, first of all, of their guilt and condemnation before God, and second of all, of God's gracious and merciful and free gift of forgiveness. Those who hear the clear proclamation of the truth of the gospel and respond to it with utter indifference and apathy are in some of the most dangerous places that a person could ever be. It's dangerous to hear the preaching of the truth. It's dangerous to be around Christians who are proclaiming the truth to you. It's dangerous to come to church and to hear. It's dangerous to go through all of that and then finally to face the judgment of God. That's the message. And Jesus delivers it to us, if you will, in two simple statements or two simple reasons why it is so dangerous. First of all, because gospel clarity exposes guilt. Gospel clarity exposes guilt. To have someone who, in light of everything that Christ came to offer, to have someone who hears not only of the threat of God's judgment for eternity, but someone who also proclaims to you that they're going to give their own life on a cross so that you, apart from anything that you need to do, can have all of your sins forgiven. To have someone who can reject such a merciful and gracious and free offer of God bespeaks of such a, a vile and deep-rooted Uh, uh, love and affection for your sin, it is almost inexplicable. It's incomprehensible why anyone would reject that kind of grace and mercy and kindness. And yet they do. And it is just a testimony to the depth and the depravity of their guilt. Now, Jesus makes this point by way of a comparison. He, first of all, singles out the villages of Chorazin and Bethsaida, those, those uh, northern sort of uh, branches of his ministry, if you will, and he compares them with the infamous city-states of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these were notorious Phoenician cities who were ruled by greed and materialism and pride that created within them a kind of a heartless mercenary culture that would almost do anything in order to satisfy their insatiable appetite for more. They were, in a way, the kind of ancient pirates of the Mediterranean Sea, coastal cities north of Israel along the modern coast of Lebanon. They are, even today, still in existence, two of the uh, the probably the most continuously or oldest continuously inhabited cities on the face of the earth. Sidon apparently was the original city along the coast until one day there was a feud among its leaders and one of their leaders moved out to an island and founded the citadel city known as Tyre, actually two islands. He built a citadel on one island and a temple to his god, Melkart, on the other, eventually connecting the two islands by a causeway so that it became one continuous island. Tyre soon became the dominant of the two, although they're often spoken of together because they're very close to one another. They share the same language, the same culture, the same religion. And so they were kind of sister cities, Tyre and Sidon. But they were famous, first and foremost, because of their skill in seamanship. Tyrian galleys were legendary for their speed, their maneuverability. They dominated the entire Mediterranean world, Mediterranean Sea, for almost a thousand years. And they established outposts all over the Mediterranean so that they could travel, they could they could uh, you know, re-equip themselves, they could dock, they could trade, resupply, all of their things. Uh, many of these were just small outposts. One of them, Carthage, became one of the dominant cities throughout all of the ancient world. But because of this enormous span and hundreds and hundreds of outposts all throughout the Mediterranean, 
It caused enormous wealth to flow back to this tiny little island, an island which at its height could only support about 30,000 people living there. In addition to their seamanship and their famous uh, galleys and ships, the Tyrians and the Sidonites developed a process of extracting a rare purple dye from shellfish that they had to crush by the tons in order to extract just a little bit of this Tyrian purple, also known as imperial, imperial purple or royal purple because it was so rare, so expensive that it was worn and purchased primarily by nobility. In fact, the word Phoenician from the Greek actually means purple. These were the purple people. They flew uh, purple sails uh, on their ships. They were known for this process that they had perfected through the years and guarded through the years. So they had a virtual monopoly on this, this radiant color in the ancient world. And it symbolized opulence and wealth. Now, this might have made them a target. A wealthy island with a small group of people could never sort of man a massive uh, army in defense, but the island of Tyre was virtually impenetrable. Over time, they expanded to the nearby coast with some buildings and walls, but when an approaching army would come, those who are on the coastland would retreat to the island and could not be overcome for a thousand years. Army after army, nation after nation, well-known leaders like Nebuchadnezzar tried their best to penetrate Tyre and were unsuccessful. One army laid siege to the island for 13 years before they finally gave up and went home. It was a stronghold, not only of wealth, but of military security until 330 AD when Alexander the Great came and chased the people from the coastal villages onto the island and then proceeded to tear down their city and take all of the rubble to build a causeway out to the island so that he could roll his war machines across it and finally penetrate their citadel and slaughter all the people. But for years... This was an island that was proud and pompous and arrogant and wealthy. Their ships terrorized the seas. They raided villages and other ships. They plundered everywhere they went. In Homer's Odyssey, he refers to the Phoenicians as, quote, greedy knaves whose hearts were constantly craving plunder. And it's as if they could never get enough. They developed a culture so driven by greed and materialism that they would trample anyone who got in their way. Perhaps the best illustration of this comes from their most famous princess, the most famous Tyrian princess, Jezebel, who was the daughter of two of their, one of their two most famous kings, Ethbael. We're told that she married Ahab. An, uh, an Israelite king in a kind of political alliance. And you remember the story. She dominated and, and uh, manipulated this spineless, morally weak Ahab her entire life. At one point, you may remember in 1 Kings 1, Ahab was strolling down the uh, corridor and saw a vineyard of a man named Naboth. He wanted it for himself so that he could multiply. He could have a, a vegetable garden in a different location from his other gardens. He offered to buy Naboth's vineyard and Naboth wouldn't do it because Naboth understood that when they came into the promised land, God had divided the territories among the uh, 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 tribes of Israel. And for him to do that would be to violate that plan of God. He would have, he would have leased it to him under the Jubilee, but he wouldn't sell it to him. Naboth, disappointed, went back to his house, dejected, sullen, wallowing self-pity, went and laid in his bed, turned his back to the world and anyone else who would come in the room until Jezebel came in. And she asked him, do you indeed govern Israel? Arise, eat, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, she says. Here was her Tyrian attitude. There's something you want, you see it, you take it. 
And so she promptly goes out and she forges letters. She comes up with false accusations against Naboth. She raises a rabble uh, of people and they, uh, they uh, accuse Naboth of, of treason falsely. They take him out of the city, stone him, and then she goes and she buys his vineyard on the cheap. It's what Tyrians do. They see and they take. They steal, they kill, they plunder, no matter what. They're vicious, pompous, greedy people. And to compound all that, it was Tyre and Sidon that were the ancient birthplace, if you will, the source of the cult of Baal, originally known as Baal Malkart. That was their fertility god along with the twin goddess of Ashtoreth. You may remember it was Jezebel who introduced Baal worship into Israel. She brought along with her from Tyre hundreds of Baal prophets. Ahab even went to Tyre to observe their temple and brought back a replica of the Baal altar that was there and set it up in the temple of Samaria. Baal, as I said, was a fertility god. He was primarily responsible for uh, creating the environments that allowed you to flourish in your crops and in your fields. He, he controlled, if you will, the seasons, which in, in the Near East were largely two seasons, rainy season and dry season. So anytime there was a, a drought or a famine, or even sometimes when there was war, the, the Tyrians and the Sidonites would sacrifice at the altar human beings, most of the time children. The ancient historian Diodorus said that these Phoenicians built large bronze statues of the god Baal Malkart, quote, with extended hands, palms faced upward, sloping towards the ground, so that each of the children, when placed thereon, would roll down in a sort of gaping pit filled with fire, end quote. In one account, he says, they sacrificed as many as 300 children at one time. Diodorus also mentions that they would strap a smiling mask on the face of these tiny victims as if to try to hide their tears from the God that they were being sacrificed to. Plutarch says that when they made these child sacrifices, quote, the whole area before the statue was filled with loud noises of flutes and drums, so the cries of the wailing children should not reach the ears of the people, end quote. Now, traditionally, these sacrifices were supposed to be from among the noble families. They were supposed to be meaningful because they came from important family. But in time, these families didn't want to depart or didn't want to part with their children. And so they developed a robust slave trade where they bought and stole children from all over the place. Diodorus says this, quote, in former times they had been accustomed to sacrifice to this God, the noblest of their sons, but more recently, secretly buying and nurturing children, they had these sent to the sacrifice. So they used their worldwide dominance on the oceans to develop a trafficking system of slave children from all corners of the Mediterranean. In fact, the book of Joel, God condemns the Tyrians and the Sidonites for actually kidnapping Israelite children and shipping them off, presumably for these sacrifices, possibly for sex trafficking. He says in Joel 3, verse 3, you've traded a boy for a prostitute, you've sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you, old Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold. You've carried off my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem into the Greeks in order to remove them far away from your border. So they were taking children 
and they were shipping them off, not just using them in their own sacrifices, but they were feeding an entire industry of child sacrifice that literally cloaked the coastal regions of all the Mediterranean. All of their hundreds of outposts had extreme demand for these stolen children to be burned in the fire. Even Isaiah 23, the Lord says, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I've neither labored nor given birth. I've neither, neither reared young men or brought up young maidens. So they're, they're, they're begging to Sidon. We don't have kids. We need kids. And the Tyrians and the Sidonites happily supplied them. And then Joel says they used the money that they got from these trafficked children to pay for prostitutes and to get drunk with wine. That's what your child resulted in. For all these reasons, Tyre and Sidon were the epitome of insatiable, ravenous, pretentious, degenerate, selfish brutality in the mind of every Jew. It leads to an extended lament in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 26 begins it when the Lord, in the 11th year, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came, Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken, it swung open to me, I shall be replenished. Now she's laid waste. So apparently in, in some season of vulnerability for Israel when their gates had been broken down, when their enemies had come and rampaged through them, taken maybe some of their treasures, Tyre and Sidon followed up behind like scavenger dogs, taking their children too. The next chapter, 27, the word of the Lord came to me, Now, son of man, raise a lament over Tyre. Say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance of the sea, the merchant of the peoples to the coastland. Thus says the Lord, O Tyre, you've said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of the fir uh, fir trees from Sinar. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of the oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your decks of pines from the coast of Cyprus inlaid with ivory. A fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was your awning. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers, your skilled men. Otire were within you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gebal, your skilled men, were within you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to barter on your waves. He goes on to say how they had militia and mercenaries at their beck and call. And they went everywhere trading As he says down in verse 12, silver and iron and tin and gold. Or verse 13, you exchanged human beings, vessels of bronze, horses, mules, tusk and ebony, all kinds of treasures. They saw anything they wanted and they took it. In the next chapter, verse 28, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, behold, your heart is proud. You said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the hearts of the sea, and yet you are but a man, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. Your wisdom and your understanding have made the wealth, uh, have made wealth for yourself. You've gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you've increased your wealth. Your heart has become proud in your wealth. Thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore I will bring a foreigner upon you, the most ruthless of the nations. They'll draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They'll thrust you down into the pit. You will die a death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say, I am a God? in the presence of those who kill you. 
He's talking about, he's talking about Alexander the Great. He was going to come and defile them some 500 years after this. And then he goes on with this in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis and topaz, Diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, crafted in gold were the settings of your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed guarded guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. It's as if the Lord is lamenting this terrible, terrible nation. And as he goes on in this series of laments, he blends together in a rebuke of their leaders, a rebuke of Satan himself. Satan was the cherub. He was the one who was adorned so beautifully, set to guard the mountain of God. He was the one who was there at the beginning He was the one who walked blameless in all of his ways until unrighteousness was found in him. It's as if God is delivering this lament to Tyre and Sidon and saying ultimately the only thing that could be animating such atrocity, such brutality, such uh, such sort of uh, depravity, the only thing that's animating that is ultimately Satan who has filled the hearts of your leaders to enact this kind of cruelty, this kind of injustice, this kind of brutality. You are Satan's kingdom, essentially. That's Tyre. That's Sidon. And Jesus says to them in Chorazin and Bethsaida, I'm going to go easier on them than I am on you. He also has a word for Capernaum. He tells them by way of comparison that they are going to be worse off than the infamous city of Sodom. You, O Capernaum, you, will you be exalted to the heaven? You think you're going to heaven? You think that somehow you're going to make it into an afterlife where you're going to have bliss and splendor and wonder? You think you're going to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom... It would have remained till this day. Anyone who knows the Bible knows this infamous story of Sodom, which was utterly destroyed by God. It was the epitome of corruption and perversion and lewdness and depravity. So much so that in our own legal vernacular, we have coined the word sodomite to refer to the perverse practice of homosexuality that was represented in the city, especially homosexual raping of young boys. This was the story of Sodom. You remember Genesis 18 and 19? I don't need to take you all the way back through it. Just summarizing the details, these two angels, one of them the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ walking on the face of the earth. They came, they visited with Abraham. They told him what was about to happen. They say in Genesis 18, 20, the angel of the Lord says, behold the word of the Lord because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is very grave. I will go down and see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. They were going because an outcry had come. They were going to investigate. And what were they investigating? They were investigating the vilest forms of sexual perversion that you could imagine homosexual perversion of the worst kind. As the story unfolds, the two angels angels enter the city of Sodom and make their way immediately to the house of Lot where he welcomes them in and quickly closes the door and begins to greet them and offer them food only to find that the men of the city had taken notice. Maybe because these men were angels and 
particularly attractive or perhaps because they were considered unblemished. But their perverse desires overtook them. And they came and formed a mob outside the door of Lot. They bombarded the house of Lot, demanding that he open the door and send the two men out to the mob so that they could, quote, know them. He's not talking about meeting them. It's a euphemism for sexually abusing them, raping them. There are some people who think that God was angry with with uh, the people of Sodom because they were somehow inhospitable. That they just wanted to greet these visitors. But the context absolutely rejects that because Lot, understanding the extreme perversion of what they were after and knowing that there were no good solutions, knowing that one of the men in his household was none other than the angel of the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, Lot tries to offer his two daughters instead He says to the mob, behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and you do to them as you please. He's not saying that his daughters had never met a man, had never encountered a man, had never uh, uh, spoken to a man in the marketplace or the square or even hosted one in their home. He's saying that these two uh, daughters of him had never had a sexual encounter. They had never known a man in that way. dreadful, dire, terrifying situation. And Lot makes this foolish yet desperate attempt to have them violate his daughters rather than these two angels. But they didn't want the daughters. They weren't interested in the daughters. They wanted the men. And so they continued, they continued their endeavor to break through the doors until God struck the mob with blindness and we're told that even after they lost their sight they weren't overcome their perverted desires continued to stir within them so they kept pounding on the door groping to find a way through absolutely unimaginable level of consuming perverse desire of course we know how the Lord responded He brought the greatest destruction of any city in the Old Testament, raining down fire and brimstone crystals that pierced and flayed and cut the people open, annihilated their homes, burned their city to the ground, and buried it under the Dead Sea. So that Sodom and Gomorrah became a byword for God's rejection and punishment. Jesus is telling these Jewish inhabitants, these people, they would have responded to the message that you're hearing if they had had the chance. These people as atrocious and as awful as they were, these people who you would look down your nose at, these people who you feel like somehow in your sophistication and in your culture that somehow you have advanced and you are beyond them, these people, if they had had the privileges and the opportunity that you've had to hear the clear proclamation of the truth, they would not have responded the way that you responded. They would not have closed their heart. They would not have hardened their heart. They would not have been indifferent. They would not have been apathetic. They would have repented. Sodom would still be standing. Tyre and Sidon would have covered themselves in ashes. They would have clothed themselves in the rough garment of burlap sacks and walked around mourning if they had heard the truth as clearly as Capernaum had heard it. And so Jesus says that this town... This village, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, you suffer a much worse fate than any of these cities are going to suffer in the day of judgment. You will not escape. 
You'd be better off to be one of those people. You'd be better off to be in one of those societies. You'd be better off to be one of those brutal people. You'd be more tolerable for you if you were a Mongol or a Viking or a Nazi or a Tyrian or a Sodomite or any of those things would be more tolerable for you on the day of judgment than to be someone who sat under the clear proclamation of the truth, the free offer of God's mercy and forgiveness and instead chose to hold on to your sin. Your obstinance just reveals the guilt of your heart. Your refusal, your indifference just shows the depravity of your heart. And God is not going to pass over it easily. Which brings us really to our our second point here is not only does gospel clarity reveal this kind of guilt, but it escalates your punishment. It's going to be worse for you It's going to be worse for you than all of these peoples. You're going to face a stiffer penalty, as bad as Sodom was, as atrocious as the Tyrians were, as brutal as they were, and their sex trafficking and their child trafficking and their murderous infanticide, as terrible as they were in their greed and their pomp and their wealth, as terrible as all of those people are, you would be better off to be one of those people than to be someone who sat under the clear proclamation of the truth of the Son of God and to have rejected it. By the way, this isn't referring only to those who heard Christ himself because back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, he has the same kinds of words of warning for those who heard the preaching of the apostles. If any of you, excuse me, if anyone will receive you or listen to your words, or I'm sorry, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Those are the words that Christ gave to his disciples as they went out to preach. So it's not only the rejection of Christ and his miracles, it's the rejection of his messengers. It's the rejection of his message of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And he's saying it is inexplicable. Why in anyone, why would anyone with a sane, rational mind understanding the message of eternal condemnation reject such a message whenever it's being offered with the most gracious, loving, free gift of forgiveness? You don't need to do anything. You you receive this gift because Christ does it all. Who would reject that? Only the most depraved, self-centered, proud, obstinate sinner in the world would do such a thing. And so consequently, Jesus gives this warning that because of that reality, when the day of judgment comes and you're before the final throne, standing before your maker, your punishment will be severe. There will be degrees of punishment. There will be some who suffer worse than others. There will be some who face the wrath of God in more intense degree than others. In this particular situation, these cities who had such such enormous opportunity to hear from Christ are going to be some of the worst recipients of the wrath of God. The scripture says we'll all be gathered before the throne of God on the final judgment. He will separate the peoples. He'll separate those who are his sheep from those who are the goats. He'll judge the peoples. He'll judge them not only for their deeds and their works, but he's going to judge them because of their rejection of him and his Savior. They'll be resurrected in their material bodies only to be cast into an eternal lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for you to be in a place like this, to be around other Christians 
to be in a place where people are sharing the gospel to you or with you over and over again and you're just responding with indifference is dangerous. An incredibly dangerous proposition for you to hear the truth of God and to not let it penetrate your heart. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with the clarity of the gospel. The problem is with you and your obstinate heart. But the good news is that that free gift of forgiveness is still being proclaimed. It's still being offered. Even in this very context, after Jesus gives these dire warnings, he turns right around in Matthew chapter 11 and once again pleads with the people He says to them down at the end of the chapter, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Who would reject Such a gracious Savior. Only the most vile, repugnant, hardened, depraved heart. And the Lord knows this. And for that reason, they're going to face the stricter judgment. Some people hear the gospel, they respond right away. Some people, they might need to listen for two years, three years, four years. In my case, I needed years and years and years of people faithfully proclaiming the gospel to me. Every time, it was more dangerous. I was more culpable. I was hearing more truth. I was understanding more than I ever had. It would have put me in a very terrible position had the Lord not worked in my heart, but there's no other option. We preach the gospel with clarity because eventually some do respond. They come to their senses. They understand the Savior. They repent. They escape judgment when they believe. There's an urgency to it, though. An urgency that we give people this call and we give people this warning of what they face now that they know the offer of the gospel. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we're so heavy-hearted to think about these kinds of sober ideas, these kinds of warnings Of course, we're grateful that you offered to us the pathway of salvation. We couldn't be more joyful at the mercy shown to us. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for those around us who remain indifferent. They remain apathetic. We pray that you give us the kind of diligence and love and patience to plead with them to come to the Savior to escape eternal damnation to find the rest for their soul that Christ promised we pray all these things in Christ's name Amen